decided to call the whole series uh, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? I've, I've battled with myself over the titles, but I think I'll just leave that as the title for the whole series. And, uh, and for this lesson, uh, the question is, does God care how we do church? I told you the story, I think, of my friend Bob, who's now with the Lord. When uh, we were in seminary, the professor was uh, teaching theology, and so he uh, taught the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, and then he got eventually to the doctrine of the church. And my friend Bob, without any malice or guile, was just puzzled. And, and so when there was time for questions, he raised his hand and he said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, um, I, I'm just wondering, when you taught about the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation and, and all of these things, you said, now, here are different views. Here's the correct view. He said, and all of a sudden, we've come to the doctrine of the church and you're serving it cafeteria style. I, I don't think I understand. And the professor, recognizing sincerity, gave a, a straightforward answer and it, in, in, in its essence was this. Well, we have a lot of people who represent a whole lot of different kinds of churches. And so we don't plant our feet very firmly when it comes to the doctrine of the church. And my question is, can we really do that? And so I'd like in this first message to say, can we really do it our way? Uh, it was uh, uh, Paul Anka who, who redid a song for Frank Sinatra that came out in 1969. You know, when Frank Sinatra sings, I did it my way. That's the theme song of hell in my book. But, but, but they realized, Paul Anka, when he, when he redid the, the song, he realized it captured the spirit of the age. And so it wasn't very long, but what the hamburger world caught on, and Burger King said, have it your way. You know, I mean, you wonder what that means. Can I just come in there and flip my own burger, <laughs> put my own stuff on it? And, and there's that mindset that, that's been a part of our culture that we really can have things our way. And so when it comes to the church, and, and there, I think, are, are very good and godly people who have done this, but... Do you really start a church by going around the neighborhood asking unsaved people what kind of a church they'd like to attend? And yet, that's done, and people are writing it down in their notepads, and they're, and they're buying books that tell you how to go around and do the same thing. And, and I'm simply asking the question, is it really that casual in the Bible? Is the Bible really that uh, casual when it comes to how we do church? And so I'm going to focus on, on two principal uh, things, uh, one in the old and one in the new. I'm going to look at uh, Uzzah and, and the ark as we uh, see it, and then I'm going to look at the, just at the book of 1 Corinthians to see if we can get any instruction there. There are a lot of things we could say in terms of Old Testament backdrop for this, a lot of other places to go. Israel's idolatrous worship of the golden calf, that obviously got God's attention, Exodus chapter 32. Nadab and Abihu, strange fire, that got God's attention. Moses striking the rock, and it says that God kept him from going into the land because of his irreverence, because he did not have a sense of the holiness of God. Uh, the warning about false prophets who lead us to worship other gods. God takes that seriously, so seriously prophets ought to die if they're false prophets. Jeroboam's false worship, remember in 1 Kings chapter 12 and chapter 13, where he establishes a synthetic kind of uh, worship that is like, but not exactly like, the worship that took place in Jerusalem. I want to focus on Israel and the Ark of the Covenant, if I can. So let's look at some scenarios. There's going to be a lot of slides because I was trying to put the scripture up there for you to read, and the first comes to us from chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. This is really a fascinating text because in chapter 3, we've, up till chapter 3, we've been reading about uh, the birth and then the, the uh, growing up of Samuel. And the latter part of chapter 3, it says, not one word of Samuel's failed. Well, I guess if I was getting directions, <laughs> I'd like to get them from Samuel. And yet, when you come to chapter 4, the first sentence basically says that Samuel's words were great 
And then from verse 2 of chapter 4 until chapter 7, Samuel's not mentioned again. And so all of these things that are taking place are taking place, as it were, without the word of the Lord through the prophet Samuel. I find that, I think, significant. But you remember Israel went to battle against the Philistines. Around 4,000 Israelite soldiers were killed. And it is not now a time for Samuel to say, here's what's gone wrong. But the elders seem to take charge and they say, we need to do something dramatic. And so they chose to get the Ark of the Covenant as though it were kind of a big magic rabbit's foot and to take it with them into battle. And you remember that it, it really starts out looking good. The Israelite soldiers are all psyched up and they're this great outcry and, and, and the, the Philistines are shaking in their boots and saying, come on guys, be men, let's die like men. And, and the end result is a terrible tragedy for Israel, they lose many, many more, over 50,000 people uh, in, that, in, in that event. And the worst thing was that they lost the ark. You remember they lost the ark, they lost Phineas and Hophni. By the way, Tom's pronunciations are right, mine are just old, and I stay with them because I'm old. So anyway, Hophni and, and Phineas, the uh, uh, Eli's sons, are killed. When Eli hears about it, he falls backwards, breaks his neck, and dies. And you have the end of an era as it's described. And, and the interesting statement is, comes from uh, the widow, the wife of Phineas, when she's pregnant and delivering this child, she names him Ichabod. Gone is the glory. So when the ark left, the, the symbol of God's physical presence, the symbol of God's glory departed and it was a bad day for Israel. So I call the next uh, slide in 1 Samuel chapter 5, pass it on. You know, this is when uh, the, 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 I mean, you have to laugh your way through this chapter. This is where the Philistines have the ark. And, and they triumphantly bring it into the house of their god Dagon as a trophy of war. The first time they just find Dagon laying on his face, as it were, before the ark. They propple Dagon back up again. And he, and, and he falls on the threshold and he, and he breaks his, his head off and his hands. And isn't that, that to me is symbolic in the sense that when the, when the prophets speak about these false gods, they cannot speak. You don't speak if your head's gone. And he cannot act. Your hands are gone. Can't speak, can't do anything, and sure can't defend himself. And this is the time when they're singing, pass it on. Because they say in Ashdod, you know what? You guys in Gath really need this ark. And so you have this thing, and, and I won't go into all the grimy stuff about what kind of disease God sent, but let's just say folks were really eager for that ark to be moving away and going somewhere else. So they passed the blessings on, and finally, the Philistines got smart, and they said, you know what? This thing is just downright unhealthy. Let's move it on. Uh, let's send it back to Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, you have that description that you can see on the screen. But they, they say, go and make a new cart. And, and now, and these poor Philistines, they don't know how to move the ark of God. They just want it to go away. But, but somehow this new ar uh, uh, um, uh, uh, cart has some appeal to them. And they want to be sure that it isn't just luck or coincidence or whatever and so they take two milk cows separate them from their calves and hook them up to this cart and and without looking back as a, as a cow would do toward its offspring they head right up the road to Beth Shemesh and the Philistines follow along to see uh, what's taking place now when you look at verses 19 through 21 of, of chapter 6, you see what's happening when the ark arrives. The ox cart comes by this big stone, uh, now in Israel, in the town of Beth Shemesh, and there are people out working in the fields, and no doubt people are saying, what, what in the world is that? And all the excitement of the people of Israel as they see the ark now coming to be there. But the problem is that some of the people, at least, looked into the ark which we know to be forbidden territory. I don't think 50,070 all came by and looked in the ark. It seems to me that, that somebody, some representative group, looked into that ark and this plague came about and, and, and a huge slaughter amongst the Israelites. I think you could say God is very serious about how people approach him and holy things 
and in particular in this instance the the ark and so uh, they they uh, they decide that they're going to have to uh, pass this thing along and so look what the people say here in verse 20 of first Samuel 6 who is able to stand before the Lord this holy God hey they're getting it right now to whom will the ark go up from here and so they sent messengers to the residents of Kiriath-Jerim saying the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord come down here and take it back home with you <laughs> don't you just love that where did they get that well I mean they're doing the same thing the Philistines were they don't know how this thing is just too hot to handle they don't know what to do with the ark of God because of the holiness of God I, I had this uh, slide just inserted because there is a period of time where the ark is just kind of in a state of neglect and you'll see in that text in first chronicles chapter 13 that it talks about in verse 3 let's move the ark of, of God back here for we did not seek his will throughout Saul's reign there's one instance in first Samuel chapter 14 where, where uh, Saul calls for them to bring the altar some I think the Septuagint and some have followed along and, and, and said bring the ephod but it, it seems to me it's the ark and this text is saying that the ark somehow was one of those means by which they thought they could discern God's will and, uh, and so the ark is actually neglected during Saul's reign and, and in a way you could say well Saul was kind of smart <laughs> to just leave that thing alone because other people had tried and hadn't done too well and David's going to try in a minute and he won't do too well either which brings us to the text in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and some of those verses that Tom read to us notice they loaded the ark of God I just, by the way just notice I underscored the they it doesn't say any special group so they loaded the ark of God on a new cart isn't it interesting as it were, it's, a, it's as though the Israelites have written to the Philistines and said, we don't really know how to do worship with the ark. Could you tell us how? And they say, yeah, yeah, build, build a new cart. Maybe they just duplicated the same thing. My, my point is, they're acting just like the Philistines. They're not doing any better, and yet God was very specific about how the ark would be transported, but here it is, on an ox cart, and that's the reason why it almost overturns and Uzzah feels like he has to take action. I feel sort of sorry for Uzzah in Ohio in all of this. They're walking along. It's Uzzah who's seeing the, the ox stumble and apparently looking at the cart as though it's going to topple the contents out on the, on the, on the road. Instinctively, and it seems to me, with, with good intent, tries to steady the ark, but he laid his hands on it. And for that, God struck him dead. It says, Uzzah reached out and grabbed the hold of the ark of God because of the, one of the oxen had stumbled. The Lord was so furious with Uzzah that he killed him on the spot for his negligence. I don't really like that word negligence. It's only used once, but it seems to me it's his disregard. It's his lack of reverence. And so a number of the translations say, for his irreverence. He did not look upon that ark as one of the holy things of God and he dealt with it as though it were common and because of that, God struck him dead. David's response in 2 Samuel 6, verses 8 through 11. Notice, first he's mad. Isn't that interesting? He's just flat angry because he wants, I'm not sure about this, but he says, how can the ark come to me? And, and, and it's as though somehow he's had a very uh, emotional experience in all of this, but, but all he's looking at it, it seems like initially, is just God's reigned on my parade. And so he leaves uh, the ark uh, for a period of time until he has time to think about it. But look at verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how will the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he moves from anger to fear that's a good move that's a really good move because that it seems to me is one of the elements that was missing now here's the part that just tickles me to death look at this David was no longer willing to bring the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David he left it in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite ring any bells? that's somebody who comes from the city of Gath like Goliath 
Isn't that a hoot? And it says, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his house. Here you have the thing taken by the Philistines. They circulate it around and finally get rid of the thing and send it back to Israel. Israel gets it and they get wiped out for touching it. And now it spends its time in the house of a Philistine who obviously has reverence for God and that ark and God blesses his socks off. I love that. And, and it's just seemingly just one of those subtle little clues that's given to us. So I call the next frame, success at last. And here you have 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. David was told, the Lord has blessed the family of Obed-Edom and everything he owns because of the ark of God. So David went and joyfully brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. Those who carried the ark of the Lord took six steps and now David, then David sacrificed an ox and a fatling calf and David was dancing with joy before the Lord obviously David has done his homework and you'll see that 1st Chronicles chapter 15 verse 3 it says uh, verse uh, look at start at verse 1 of 1st Chronicles chapter 15 David constructed buildings in the city of David he then prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it then David said, Only the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord. David has done a little research. He's looked at some texts like Exodus chapter 25, verses 13 through 15, that describes the poles that are to be inserted through the rings and never taken out so that it can be transported by means of men carrying those poles. And, uh, and then you have this interesting uh, statement that's given when you look at Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 the ark comes back to Israel and you remember when it is placed in the temple uh, by Solomon the glory of the Lord comes down so that the priest, priest can't even go into the temple so the visible glory of God is manifest there but in time Israel is going to sin they're going to be carried off into Babylonian captivity and from that point on the ark disappears probably melted down I suspect but the ark is gone never to return but look at this statement uh, that we see in Haggai chapter 2 and then in Jeremiah chapter 3 when the Israelites return under Ezra and Nehemiah when they return uh, they lay the foundation for the new temple and it says that the old timers who were there wept while the younger generation were, were cheering they were joyful and glad and the reason was that the old timers recognized the glory the visible glory that they had known in the old temple was gone and here's what uh, Haggai says in Haggai chapter uh, 2 verse 3 who among you survivors saw the former splendor of this temple? How does it look to you now? Isn't it nothing by comparison? And then he says in verse 9, The future splendor of this temple will be greater than that of the former times. Now, look at Jeremiah chapter 3. And let's just uh, go down to verse uh, 16. In those days, your population will greatly increase in the land. At that time, that's the time that Israel is restored to God's blessing. At that time, says the Lord, people will no longer talk about having the ark that contains the Lord's co uh, covenant with us. They will not call it to mind, remember it, or miss it. No, that will not be done anymore. As great as it was, God is saying, something far greater is coming than that ark but we learned some lessons from that ark and, uh, and, and we'll talk about those as soon as we've looked at the New Testament now let's take a look at the, uh, the church in the New Testament and ask ourselves some questions what changes did the new covenant bring about for the church does being a part of the new covenant change what God is saying about how he is to be worshipped and what are the implications of that for the church how rigid are God's instructions concerning the church? Now, that's the real sore point for me because in, many, in the case of many people who are writing on the church or who are practicing with respect to the church, it's as though somehow all of the things that we find in Scripture are just suggestive. You might want to try this in a certain culture at a certain time. Is the Scripture really that 
loosey-goosey. Can we really have it our way and, and, and label that something that's permitted by the new covenant? Is God serious in his dealings with those who fail to worship as they should? Now, I want to focus just on 1 Corinthians, if I can. I've got lots of places I could go, but I want to look just at 1 Corinthians, and especially at this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, remember, chapter 1, chapter 2 are talking about the divisions that have arisen in the church at Corinth, people following particular leaders, and we find out as we read our way through that these leaders are teaching false things, and they will be called messengers of Satan in, in 2 Corinthians. But there is division in the church, uh, and things are not the way they should be. And so in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, we read this. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, but someone else builds on it. And each one must be careful how he builds. Then he goes on to say, you need to be real careful about the foundation. The, the only legitimate foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what our Lord uh, said to Peter when Peter made his great confession in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus Christ is the foundation, and that cannot be changed. It must not be changed. But we may be inclined to read that text, as I think I have done in the past, and that is to say that it's just kind of a general thing. We give account for the lives that we live. We are accountable for how we behave, but we are, we are believers, and our foundation is the Lord Jesus. But this, this text, is, in my mind, is clearly about the church and how you do church. Look at verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, which is what you are. So what we see is moving from the Old Testament and the image of the temple and in particular the Ark of the Covenant where it was within the Holy of Holies and God's visible glory is associated with that. Moving from that, the prophet says, you haven't seen anything yet. Jesus comes, the first thing he does, John chapter 2, is go to the temple and cleanse it. Virtually the last thing he does is go to the temple and cleanse it uh, before he is crucified. But Jesus in John chapter 2 says, destroy this temple and I'm going to rebuild it. And, and they're saying, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, and John tells us, he's speaking of the temple of his body. So Jesus is the temple, and yet what we see here is his church now is that visible manifestation of the Lord Jesus. Somebody said it earlier this morning. When, when, when the attributes of God are going to be seen, one of the ways they'll be seen is through saints, through people in his church who are living out those attributes as a part of their life. So the church is God's temple, and what he's saying is, you better not mess with that. Don't mess with the foundation, and what you build needs to be consistent with what God has revealed. So it seems to me that sets the pace, and if you look at 1 Corinthians, man, that church was sick in a whole lot of ways, and what Paul is doing is addressing the sickness of that church and how it ought to be corrected. Very quickly, just I call your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice that in this case of gross immorality, the kind of immorality that shocked Corinthian pagans, Paul says, that Paul is saying the church should have exercised discipline and removed that person from amongst their midst so that even if the flesh were to be destroyed, his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. So he's not saying being removed from the church sends him to hell. He's saying being removed from the church is meant to restore him to repentance and to his proper relationship with the Lord Jesus. But my point is this. He says, Christ is our Passover lamb, and he has now been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of vice and evil, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So what he is saying is, when you look back at the, at the Passover celebration, that then commenced the week of unleavened bread where they searched through the house, removed the leaven, and so on. And he's saying, Christ, the perfect lamb, was sacrificed. And after that, after his work, 
there ought to be a purification that takes place. So the church ought to move toward purity and holiness. And one of the ways they would do that collectively is to remove the leaven from their midst that had a corrupting influence. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22. Remember now, Paul is speaking to this church where people were flagging their rights talking about all the the rights that they had, which included eating meats offered to idols, they thought, and which included, they believed, the freedom to go and be a part of these heathen celebrations. And Paul simply says to them, flee from idolatry. And then he goes on and he says, think about the cup. When we come together, when we gather together for worship and remember the Lord, think about the cup and think about the loaf. And is that loaf not a symbol of the whole body? And so think about what you're doing now when you go to this heathen celebration. Can you really serve two masters? Can you really worship two gods? The gods, uh, uh, the heathen gods, and then the only true God? No, you cannot do that. And so Paul is saying, don't do it. Don't eat meat offered to idols. Don't go to those heathen celebrations. And as I've suggested to you, the misconduct I see in chapter 11 is probably heavily influenced by the misconduct in chapter 10. And in fact, you'll see that. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 and following. Now, in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place... When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. We've already heard about that. For there must, in fact, be divisions among you, so that those of you who are approved may be evident. Now, when you come together at the same place, you are not really eating the Lord's Supper. For when it is time to eat, everyone proceeds with his own supper. One is hungry, and another becomes drunk. Do you not have houses so that you may eat and drink, or are you trying to show contempt for the church of God. You know, this seems kind of long ago and far away, uh, what's taking place in Corinth, but what he's saying is, you come to church to satisfy yourself. You come to church to, to indulge in your flesh. You don't really care about the symbols. Now, I understand that in that setting, they were partaking of an entire meal. It's kind of hard to get get too full with what we've got sitting on the table but imagine now a full course meal that's set out and we partake of that meal at the time that we're remembering the Lord what he's saying is you guys came here to pig out on the food you're not really here to celebrate what those elements are about that bread symbolizes the perfection and the purity of our Lord Jesus it says that he is the spotless lamb so that he may make the sacrifice and the the wine which is the symbol of his blood says that sacrifice is effective because of who offered it so the bread and the wine work together and he says when you get together you don't really care about that you don't care about the symbols all you care about is the stuff then he goes on and he says in verse 23 for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night which he was betrayed took bread after he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me that's what the eating and the drinking was to do was to remember Christ for every time you eat this drink, uh, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For this reason, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And I, I've, I've struggled with this in terms of what he was saying when he talks about not discerning the body. And the question is, are we talking about the church? Are we talking about the body of our Lord Jesus? It seems to me, first and foremost, we're talking about our Lord's body. We're failing to come to grips with the perfect holiness of our Lord Jesus. And its implications for us because we are a part of his body. And therefore, we ought to be holy even as he is holy. So there were those in the church, as you know, as he says in these following verses, in verse 28 and following, 
those who persist in their practice of doing what they're doing and those who have persisted, he says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and sick and quite a few are dead. (laughs) That doesn't really sound that different to me from what I see in the Old Testament. It seems to me that, that, that the scripture is saying to us, God is particular about the way in which we do church. God isn't giving us a have-it-your-way, uh, open ticket to fill in as we choose. And the baseline for it all is who God is. It's the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason why his death can be efficient and sufficient for us who are lost and trust in him. But it's also the reason why we ought to live lives that are holy. I was thinking about Isaiah chapter 6 and, and, and Isaiah's vision of the holiness of God. It is a vision of the holiness of God which is the basis and the beginning point for real, true ministry. Is it not? Not just for him. And then I looked in First Peter chapter 1 where it talks... And it talks about girding up uh, the loins of our mind and preparing ourselves. And he's going to talk now about some of the things that that entails. But the first thing he says is, be ye holy as he is holy. The beginning point, I think, for us in our Christian life is an awareness of the holiness of God. And so when I look in the Old Testament and I see Moses whacking away on that rock instead of speaking to it, And God says it's because of his irreverence. It seems to me we need to be more astute about the holiness of God. The offenses that take place in the Old Testament, which bring about the death penalty, are offenses that are against the holiness of God. And I believe that is also true in the New Testament. Well, let me just give you some bullet points. How we do church does matter. It matters a lot. Now, Next week, I'm going to talk about where the lines are drawn. I I understand that there is freedom as well as structure in terms of what the New Testament church is to be like. But all I'm saying here is there are lines. And when those lines are crossed, Old Testament or New, God takes that very seriously. Because the church is the place where God has chosen to reveal his holiness. He has chosen to receive glory. He has chosen to showcase the church before the celestial powers. Ephesians chapter 3. It's the place that is to bring him glory. And when we mess that up, God is not happy at all. Men get careless in worship when, try this, they get too casual. This is one of those times in our culture where, where we have gotten pretty casual about the way in which we approach God. Now, I understand from Hebrews chapter 10 that we have the, the, the right to boldly approach the presence of God. I understand that part. But nowhere in the scriptures do I ever see our approach to God setting aside or being neglectful of the holiness of God. And, and, and so here we just have to know that we cannot be casual in the way that some are casual and, and really observe the holiness of God, or so it would seem to me. <clears throat> they grow careless about his word. That's what I was saying with Samuel. Here is Samuel, in a sense, who is the word of God, and in whole, this whole thing that takes place with the loss of the ark, <laughs> Samuel was never consulted. You know, it said not one word of Samuel failed. But they didn't consult, as it were, the word of the Lord. We grow, uh, we, we grow careless when we grow cold in our relationship with God. Is that not true for us? Just grow cold, we get careless. And when our sense of the holiness of God diminishes. And, and then I put after that, idolatry is the worship of a lesser God. And, and, and that's why we can be worshiping. Look at, look at Exodus chapter 32. They thought they were still worshiping God. They said, behold, here is your God that led you out of Egypt. But what they had done is they had begun to worship God through an image. And therefore, they made him a lesser God, and that's idolatry. It was a God that they thought they could control, a God that would give them what they wanted, and yet it was not a true representation of God who cannot be represented by physical images. D. We must constantly be reminded of one, the holiness of God. Secondly, the greatness of our sin. 
than the magnitude of the work of Christ at Calvary. Uh, when uh, uh, we were worshiping this morning, Gordon got up and, and read out of John chapter 18. I was working on that text and I was thinking about it too with the I am's. But here's something that's interesting. I'm not sure whether John's working this, but it's not, be, it's not beyond him to do this. Read down that text a little bit further. You'll see that Peter pulls out his uh, sword and lops off the, the high priest's servant's ear. But then a little further than that, Peter, in his dejection, is approached by a little slave girl, and she says, you're not one of his followers too, are you? And he says, I am not. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, I am, and they're fallen. <laughs> Peter is saying, I am not, and he's got one sword out, and he whips an ear off. Doesn't do a thing. And, and what that says to me is, when we see Christ for who he is as the great I am we have to end up saying I don't know you know Peter wasn't meaning to say this but we have, to, we have to say whatever he is I'm not that's why we need a savior that's why we need what he has his perfection prepared and equipped him for the death that he died in the sinner's place that's why we pray because what he is we aren't what he has, we don't. <laughs> so worship is approaching God in his holiness. Within the boundaries that he has set in that holiness. And we are to do so with a reverent fear and yet with great joy and gratitude too. So next week I'm going to talk about, okay, where are the lines? And I'm not sure I can, I can draw those precisely, but it seems to me that there are guidelines for us, and so we'll talk about it then. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his holiness, for his perfection. He is the lamb without blemish. He is the one who alone can die a death for others. And he has done so. Help us as we gather together not to become cold in our hearts, not to be neglectful of your word, but to come realizing every week of the fact of who we are and who you are. Help us to worship in spirit and in truth. Help us not just to go through the mechanics because we think we're doing things the right way, but help us to do so with a heart that is filled with joy and gladness and, and wonder and fear. Father, if there's anyone here who has never placed their trust in the Lord Jesus as the one who made the sacrifice for them of his own life to pardon them from their sins, to give them the assurance of eternal life. May they trust in him, the Holy One of God, he who is God with us. In Jesus' name, amen.